All right. Good morning, everybody. So welcome to week nine in our series on the Apostles' Creed. And as always, if you are able and willing, I invite you to stand and let's confess this ancient creed together that's been handed down to us through the centuries. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right. You guys can be seated. So, if you were here last week, you know that we skipped ahead a little bit in the Creed because we were a little pressed for time with it being Confirmation Sunday. And so we did, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And this week, we're going to go back to what we missed, which was the line, He will come again to judge the living and the dead. So there's two big ideas there, right? He will come again, and He will come to judge. So let's start with the first one. He will come again. In the book of Acts, it says that after Jesus rose from the dead, he was in his resurrected body on earth for about 40 days. And during that time, it says that he taught the disciples about the kingdom of God. And at one point, the disciples asked him, Lord, are you at this time? going to restore the kingdom of Israel? See, the disciples had certain expectations about what the Messiah was going to do. And uh, Jesus had upset a lot of those expectations. He hadn't done things the way they thought he would. Uh, dying on the cross was definitely not part of the program in their minds. Uh, neither was this miraculous resurrection. That was all a surprise. What they had expected was that the Messiah would be this great political and military leader. Uh, they thought that the Messiah would come and make Israel into this dominant great nation, free them from Roman oppression, and then the Messiah would set up camp in Jerusalem and from there rule the whole world. And so when Jesus comes back from the dead, they can't help but wonder, well, are you going to do it now? Is now the time, finally, that you are going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Not an unreasonable question to ask. I mean, Jesus did say, right from the moment that he arrived on the scene, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. But as he taught about the kingdom of God, especially through his parables, he revealed that his idea of how the kingdom of God was going to function and grow was different from the expectations of most of the people of that time, if not all of the people from that time. But he still came to establish the kingdom of God, and he was clear about that. 
And so this is not an unreasonable question for the disciples to ask. And this is his answer. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then we're told that right after he says this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid, them, hid him from their sight. Okay, So that's what we call the ascension, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. So the answer to the disciples' question, are you now going to establish the kingdom of God? Are you going to bring it in its fullness, restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus' response is, well, it's not for you to know when that's going to happen. That will be a mystery to you. But in the meantime, I am going to send the Holy Spirit to you so that you are empowered to be my witnesses. In other words, so that you are empowered to go and tell people about what I have done, what I have said, and spread that until I come again. And so then he ascends and he leaves the disciples with this task. And this is what we're told next. The disciples were looking intently up into the sky as Jesus was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Okay? He will come back. That's what we say in the creed, right? Jesus says, nobody knows the times or the dates, but when the time is right, he will come back. Now, you guys probably know that throughout history, a lot of people have tried to determine the times and dates that Jesus will come back. And uh, they might justify it by saying something like, well, we're not trying to guess the day or the hour. Jesus forbade that. But, you know, we could probably guess the year or maybe the decade if we just put the puzzle pieces together just right. And so a lot of these people, you know, they'll, they'll search the scriptures for clues and they'll read the newspaper headlines and try to draw parallels. And, you know, they, um, they, they sell their books and today they gather their YouTube audiences and over and over again, they are wrong, right? Now, what's interesting to me is that the angel says, why do you stand here staring up at the sky? This same Jesus will come back the way he left. So, What's, what's ironic to me is I think a lot of us, we hear that Jesus is going to come back, and so we think, oh, I know what I want to do. I'm going to look at the sky, metaphorically speaking, right? I'm going to speculate. When is he coming back? I know he's coming back, so I, I want to try and figure out when. But the angel says that our response to knowing he's going to come back should actually be the opposite, that it should make us stop looking at the sky, stop speculating about when he's coming back, and just get to work doing the things that he tells us to do, right? If we know he's coming back, then our first priority should be, be ready for that. How are you ready for that? By doing what he told you to do. What did he tell you to do? Well, not to stand around and try and figure out when he's coming back, right? 
And yet, this is a, le a lesson that the church never seems to learn. There's always some people that keep trying to do that. But our focus should be on doing the things that Jesus told us to do, being his witnesses, rather than speculating. We are simply supposed to trust he's coming back and then live our lives in light of that, because when he comes back, he will come to judge the living and the dead. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is being a witness for Jesus, just as Jesus told him to. And he says, Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. So there's that phrase again, right? The living and the dead. Which means, if we try to live our lives ready for Christ's return, and then Jesus does not come back during our lives, we haven't wasted our time, right? Because when Jesus returns, he will come to judge both the living and the dead. Those who are alive, the generation that's alive when he returns, are not the only ones who are going to witness the fulfillment of the kingdom of God because Jesus is coming to judge both those who are alive and those who have passed away, the living and the dead. Now, what does it mean that both the living and the dead are going to be judged. I think this is the part of the creed that's most likely to make us nervous. He will come to judge. Jesus will come to render a verdict about each one of us. There's going to be an assessment of the lives that we have lived, what we have done with the gift of life that has been given to us. I know that's a little scary, but when you think about it, do any of us really want our lives not to matter in the grand scheme of things? Do, do any of us really want to live thinking that all our choices ultimately just amount to nothing, really? In order for our lives to truly be meaningful, there does have to be a judgment. Now, you might remember that a couple weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians 15.25, when we talked about the ascension. And it says, For Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And that's an important verse for, under, for us to understand what is going on right now. Ever since that ascension... Jesus is reigning from heaven over the earth. He is the true king of the world. But as we look at the world, we might miss that fact because the world is filled with evil, right? And, and that's because Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The kingdom is his, but there are still rebels in the kingdom, and Christ must reign from this ascended position until all those enemies have been brought under his feet, meaning until all of them have been brought in submission to him. And the day when that finally happens fully is the day when he returns and he judges the living and the dead. Now, we might ask, okay, well, why hasn't that happened yet? 
Why hasn't Christ, if he is ascended and reigning in the true king, why hasn't he just closed the book on this story, right? Why hasn't he forced those enemies underneath his feet? And the Apostle Peter actually gives us a very direct answer to that question. He says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Jesus is slow to put his enemies under his feet because he'd rather they repent and be embraced by his nail-scarred hands, right? He's more interested in redeeming his enemies than in condemning his enemies. And so he delays and delays and delays. Now, of course, the good thing about his delay is that it means that it gives every one of us more time to be ready for the judgment. The bad thing about his delay is that means that the world continues to be a mess, right? Evildoers keep doing evil, injustice continues to go, often unpunished, right? Some people literally get away with murder. Some people go to prison for things that they never did. And all of us should have a longing in our hearts for that to change. And think of what Jesus said in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. In other words, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice to be done, for things to be made right. Because one day that will happen. On the day when Christ returns and judges the living and the dead. That will happen, right? It is good for us to hunger and thirst for righteousness because that will actually one day be satisfied. If you hunger and thirst for unrighteousness, you've got a problem because one day Christ will return, he will judge the living and the dead, and now there's not, then there's not going to be any more unrighteousness in the world, right? One day he will come to judge, he will reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. If you long for a world that is free from corruption and deceit and violence, then this line in the creed should be a source of hope, right? Evil is not going to go unchecked forever. But, although this line should be a source of hope, let's be honest, it's also scary. If the world is going to be made right, can any of us remain? Right? Every one of us has sin in our hearts. None of us is without sin. Paul said, talking about the judgment day, God will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Can you imagine that? The total exposure of your motives everything in your heart, your thoughts, every word that you've uttered, all, everything that is hidden being disclosed. Right? That idea, I think, should be enough for any of us to you know, put the fear of God in us. It's a scary thought. But here is the good news. 
the same one who judges us also offers forgiveness. The judge is also the one who pardons. Let's go back to what Peter said in uh, Acts 10. Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. And then immediately after that, he adds, all the prophets testify, testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So there you have it. right? Jesus is both the judge and the one who pardons. And the requirement for pardon given here is incredibly simple, isn't it? Everyone who believes in him. Jesus, as the judge, recognizes your sin. If he didn't, then there would be nothing to forgive. He recognizes your sin, but he also offers pardon for that sin. He only asks that we believe in him. Now, I know that sounds too simple, but that is what it says. Uh, this reminds me of a story that I heard recently uh, from a pastor. Uh, the pastor said that a man came to him carrying really deep, deep guilt because he had done some really, really reprehensible things. Things that the, uh, the pastor said made him be very angry when he heard what he had done. But this man came to the pastor filled with guilt, and uh, so the pastor had this exercise that he would do where he would lead people through an imaginative encounter with Jesus in prayer. And so he, he guided him in this prayer exercise, and he said, do you see Jesus? And the man said, yes, I, I can see him. He's hanging on the cross. And the pastor said, okay, I want you to tell Jesus what you did. And so the man confessed it in all the gory details, making the pastor's stomach churn. And then the pastor asked, what does Jesus say to you? And he waited. And the man said, he says, I forgive you. And he said, okay, what do you say to Jesus? And the man said, that was too easy. And Jesus replied, no, it wasn't. From the cross. The same one who judges is the one who hung on a cross to bear the sin of the world. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. The one who judges is far more interested in redemption than in condemnation. So, if you're worried about the coming judgment, the first thing you should do is put your trust in Jesus. Believe in him. Believe that he hung on that cross to bear your sin. Confess your sins to him and then trust that he bore those sins and that he's taken care of them. Receive the forgiveness that he offers. When you come forward to communion today, think about that and hear those words, the body of Christ given for you and the blood of Christ shed for you and receive that with joy. 
Now, I want to be very careful about what I say next because I don't want to make it sound like I'm taking back anything that I just said. Okay? If, you're, if you were carrying guilt or shame today and what I just said was like this water for your soul, I want you to re just receive that. Okay? But it is important for us to recognize that when we truly believe in Jesus, we don't believe only that our sins are forgiven, but we also believe in the things that Jesus taught and said. Right? We can't separate those two things. To believe in him is to really believe in Jesus. Right? And that's more than simply just thinking, well, my sins are forgiven. Like we talked about last week, when we truly believe in Jesus, he sends the Holy Spirit into us who works on our hearts to transform us and make us more like him, to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So, if we say we believe in him, but there is no evidence of that in our lives, we might not really believe in him. Now again, okay, I want to be very careful here. Because the danger when I say that is that you do something like this. You start asking yourself, okay, well, is there enough fruit of the Holy Spirit in my life to demonstrate that I actually believe? And so you start looking to yourself to find assurance of salvation. And that is a dangerous road to go down, and it's not a road that I want you to go down, because two things happen when we do that, and neither of them are good. One, we have an acute awareness of all the ways that we fall short, and so what happens when we look to ourselves for assurance of salvation is that we despair, and we have an anxiety, and we never feel at peace in our relationship with God. So that's no good. Okay, the other alternative is that we actually think we are good enough, and then that leads to arrogance and pride. <laughs> and usually people like that are no fun to be around. Okay? So, if we want assurance of, sal of salvation, we should not be looking to ourselves and our own deeds. We should be looking to Christ and the cross. That is where you should go when you start to lack that assurance. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Think of the cross. Think of that story that I just shared. Uh, about that, that pastor bringing that man through that imaginative prayer exercise. But, Jesus and the New Testament are clear that there are certain qualities that do characterize us when we are really believing in him, when we are really allowing him to be Lord of our lives. And so as we think about this coming judgment, this evaluation of how we have lived... I think there are some verses that we should keep in mind. And this might seem like a lot. I'm going to kind of throw a bunch of them at you all at once. And if you want to write them down and look at them in more detail later, I encourage you to do that. But just putting these out there, okay? Uh, 1 John 4.8 Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Do you think that you can really say, I believe in Jesus and have no love in your heart for other people? To be the kind of person who just approaches other people as things to be used? John says, no. That's not how that works. Whoever does not love 
does not know God. Here's another big one. Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger, and invite you in, or needing clothes, and clothe you? When? When did we see you sick, or in prison, and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Isn't that such an interesting parable? The people in the parable who have been righteous... They, they don't even realize that they were serving Jesus. Right? When did we do these things for you, Jesus? And Jesus says, I counted your service to those in need, the compassion that you showed to them as service to me, because I so identify with these people that it was like you were serving me. If we think that we can be the kind of people who have no compassion for those in need and say we believe in Jesus, we should probably think again. Here's another one. Matthew 7, 1 through 2. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, some people might argue, well, Jesus is talking here about a basic principle of the way things work, which is that if you are a critical, condemning kind of person, then people are going to give it back to you. Which is true. And, and that may be part of what Jesus has in mind when he says this. Yes, if you are the kind of people who are always criticizing and condemning, other people are going to be more likely to criticize and condemn you. But I think that Jesus has more in mind here. I think he is saying something about how the Lord evaluates our lives. And he's saying something about with the measure that you use, God will measure that to you. And I say that because this is not the only place in Scripture that says this kind of thing. As some of you might be familiar with the parable of the unmerciful servant, Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Uh, this is a parable that we looked at about a year ago in our parable series. It's actually a parable that uh, Dean is going to talk about next week. I, I encourage you all to make it a priority to be here next week because Dean Collins is going to be taking the lead on I Believe in the Forgiveness of Sins and he is going to be sharing a lot from his personal story. That um, I, I've, I've read it, I've heard it, it's deeply meaningful. Um, so we're going to talk about this parable a little bit more next, next week as well. Um, but the gist of it is this. A man has an unpayable debt. It translates to billions of dollars in modern money. 
And the king, who he owes it to, just says, I'm wiping it clean. Forget about it. He absorbs that entire debt, billions of dollars, onto himself. And then it says that this servant promptly leaves the king's presence and that he goes out and tries to find another peasant who owes him a comparatively paltry debt. And he insists, pay me, pay me what you owe me. And then when the servant can't do it, he sends him to prison. And then the king finds out and says, you wicked servant, after that mercy that I showed you, how could you do that? And he hands the man over to the jailers to be tortured. And Jesus says a line that should put a, a chill down our spine. He says, this is how my heavenly father will treat you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from the heart. Another passage that comes to mind when it comes to this do not judge lest you be judged idea is James 2, 12-13. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. James clarifies just a little earlier that the law that gives freedom is the law of love your neighbor as yourself. He calls it the royal law, right? Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law of love your neighbor as yourself because... Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, so let's try to put all this together here. If we are believing in Jesus, if we really have his spirit dwelling in us, I'm not saying we're going to be perfect. We certainly are not. But there are certain characteristics that should be evident in our lives. If we are believing in Jesus, we will be people who love. We will be people who have compassion for those in need. We will be people who forgive. And we will be people of mercy rather than people of judgment. Now, I do want to clarify something. I think that that passage, don't judge lest you be judged, often gets misused. Because some people think that what Jesus is saying is, you know, you can never call an act wrong. Well, of course we can. <laughs> I mean, we would have to cut out a lot of other parts of the New Testament if we were to conclude that. Right? Jesus is not saying that we can never assess an action as right or wrong. Uh, he is not saying that we should never hold somebody accountable for their actions. What he is saying is that we do not have the right to write another person off and say, God has rejected them. We don't have that right. Why do we not have that right? Because we cannot judge fairly on that. The only one who can judge correctly there is the one who sees the end from the beginning and knows the whole story. And the only person who can do that is God, right? Jesus said that all judgment had been, has been entrusted to me, has been entrusted to the Son. So when we judge another person, when we say that person is condemned, 
what we are doing is we are setting ourselves up in the position that belongs to Jesus alone. That's Jesus' role. It's not ours. So, it's okay to judge actions as right or wrong in the discernment of the Holy Spirit, but we do not condemn. We do not put ourselves in God's shoes. And you know what? The fact that Jesus is the one who judges, that all authority has been given to him to do that, is a source of great hope for me. Because Jesus is the one who hung on the cross and prayed even for those torturing him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But that mercy of Jesus that should be a source of great hope for every one of us should never lead us to think that we can get away with living lives that are not characterized by mercy. That we can get away with living lives that are devoid of love or compassion. For judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. One of the scariest things that I think Jesus ever said can be found at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus has just warned his listeners that there are going to be false prophets who come in his name. And he says that they're going to be like wolves in sheep's clothing. And then he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. <clears throat> Jesus is saying that there will be false prophets who come in his name who are very convincing. I mean, these are people who are going to sound sincere and emotional. Lord, Lord. These are people who are going to appear to do miracles in the name of Jesus. These are the kind of people who would fill arenas, maybe, and sell lots of books and, and do what looks like miracles. But Jesus calls some of these people wolves in sheep's clothing. Why does he call them that? What does a wolf want to do to a sheep? Eat it, right? You know, I, I often hear... That phrase, you're a wolf in sheep's clothing given to spiritual leaders who say something that people don't agree with. And yes, doctrine is important, don't get me wrong. But the real mark of a wolf in sheep's clothing is that they don't love the sheep, God's people. They just want to use the sheep. That's what wolves do with sheep. They want to eat them. And throughout the history of the church, throughout the history of the world, there have always been Prophets, spiritual leaders, whose real motivation is not to serve and love people, but to use them. To use them for money, or sexual purposes, or just for a sense of power and control. And Jesus says, on the day when I come again to judge the living and the dead, I will say to those people, away from me, I never knew you. Why? Because they never learned compassion. They never learned love. They didn't have mercy in their hearts. They just wanted to use people. So, do you want to be ready for Judgment Day? Two things to do. 
One, put your trust in Jesus. If it helps, imagine putting all of your anxiety, all of your sins, into his outstretched, nail-pierced hands, ready to receive it and let it go. Put your trust in Jesus. And then, number two, let him transform you into a person of mercy and compassion. Let the mercy that he's shown you make you merciful. Let the forgiveness that he's shown you make you forgiving. And let the love that he's shown you lead you to love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have that one day the world really will be made right. That our lives really do matter. And that there is forgiveness of sins available to us. Lord, we pray that as we receive the forgiveness that you offer, that you would make us into forgiving people, that your spirit would truly dwell in our hearts, and that we would bear witness to your mercy and your goodness. Help us to do that as individuals, and help us to do that as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.